Coming to you via the internet and your friends at PipesMagazine.com, it's the Pipes Magazine radio show. This guy drives a mini and smokes a pipe. He's either one in a million or a super nerd. Now, I invite you to sit back, relax, the smoking lamp is lit. Here's your host, Brian Levine. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Pipes Magazine radio show. Yes, the sometimes irreverent, sometimes educational, but always entertaining weekly pipe smoking broadcast. And I am your host, Brian Levine, coming to you on Tuesday night, the end of May. And I hope everybody in the United States had a very nice Memorial Day weekend. Uh, Hopefully you got to spend some time with friends and family. Uh, Now, on uh, tonight's show, in Pipe Parts, I will uh, catch you up on what I think the recent recent judgment on the uh, lawsuit with the FDA means. My guest tonight is uh, Bob Savage of the Old Dominion Pipe Company, so we've got a a history lesson and uh, talk about pipes in the affordable price range. Yeah, no, uh, no, no, five hundred dollars straight grain freehand handmaids here. Uh, we're we're gonna learn a lot. Uh, really enjoyed talking to Bob. Music and uh, mailbag and a rant. All that coming up in tonight's episode of the Pipes Magazine Radio Show. Uh, and this Saturday we are uh, leaving for Las Vegas. Why? Because my daughter was born when we lived there, and. All these years of traveling to Vegas for trade shows and going you know, back and forth, there, uh, there was a couple of years where I was in Vegas four or five times for trade shows and pipe shows. Every time I'd go when she was younger, she'd look at me and say, Daddy, when are you going to take me to Vegas? When are you going to take me to my city? I want to see where I was born. Meh, 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 meh. Well, I'd tell her, all right, well, when you turn 21, I'll take you there for your birthday because, you know, it's not that much fun to go there unless you're 21 and... That way you can hang out in the casinos and everything. Um, Well, that's happening this weekend. And when I first started telling her this, I thought, you know what? That's a million miles away. It's a hundred years away. It'll never happen. (laughs) Well, it happens this Sunday. So we're heading out to Vegas. Going to be the family. And uh, we're going to do a lot of the touristy things. Hope to get to see some of you uh, Vegas folks. But uh, I'm not sure. uh, We've got a pretty packed schedule of uh, sightseeing and touring and stuff like that. So... Uh, anyway, if you're in Vegas and you see me walking around smoking a pipe, yep, that's me. I'm just out there doing the touristy things and uh, no trade shows. All right, let's get the show rolling so everybody sit back, relax, fire up a bowl. Thank you all for tuning in, and here we go. All right, let's all remember back to just over three years ago when the FDA announced their deeming regulations on other tobacco products. That meant that they were going to take over, uh, they were going to take over testing and control of cigars, uh, pipe tobacco, and uh, you know, basically in, in the e-cigarette stuff. So that happened three years ago, where the deeming regulations came out. And shortly after that, after reading the deeming regulations, the in the trade associations and the industry filed a lawsuit against the FDA in federal court to uh, yeah, to to explain their point and to make to make sure that some things sound um, yeah to make <laughs> to try to protect our interest. Um, 
at that time I was, uh, you know, I was inside the business and I saw the deeming regulations and I was involved in some of the conversations on how we should respond and what it meant to us. Well, this lawsuit comes out and uh, it gets pushed back and pushed back. And, and mind you, it's filed in a court where they felt the judge was a more favorable or had a more favorable view on tobacco and, uh, uh, it, and, it, and it got delayed and delayed. So finally, after hearing the arguments and uh, some open discussion period, this, uh, this federal court judge in uh, New York State, I believe, came down with his ruling. And he essentially ruled in favor of the FDA on everything. Uh, now, the trade associations that filed this, let me back this up a little bit and, uh, and I'll get a little uh, grievance off my chest here. Uh, the, the groups that filed this are the IPCPR, the International Premium Cigar and Pipe Retailers Association, the Cigar Rights of America, which is a consumer group, and the CAA, the Cigar Association of America, which is a manufacturer of all the, uh, represents all the cigar manufacturers. In the CAA, there's a very small group called the Pipe Tobacco Council. It's called the PTC. And that group was left off of this because it is a very small faction of the pipe tobacco or of the Cigar Association of America. The monies that the Pipe Tobacco Council puts in go towards the CAA and its efforts. Um, and it and it does a good job, but for some reason they decided to leave the Pipe Tobacco Council's name off of this lawsuit, which I felt was a slight to the pipe tobacco manufacturers, and uh, I felt that it, uh, in the judge's mind, wouldn't highlight the pipe tobacco manufacturers as much as it did the cigar people. Um, now, here's what the judge said. The, uh, the health warnings have to go through, so there will be up to, I believe, 30% on the largest panel of the package of health warnings. So cigar boxes are going to have to change uh, graphic graphics as in uh, poster art and stuff like that will have to change. Um, the, the big thing that the judge did allow, and the only real win that I can see out of it, is they, the judge said that in-store blending of tobacco does not constitute manufacturing. In-store blending of tobacco uh, for, you know, for 100 years plus... Uh, businesses have uh, mom and pop pipe shops have been custom blending using components from manufacturers and this judge said that that does not constitute remanufacturing and therefore uh, should not be considered illegal or should not require those retailers to get a tobacco manufacturer's permit and register all their blends and all that stuff. However, in looking at it, uh, so that, so I mean, that's that's good for our uh, for our little hobby. Um, I'm assuming that also means that uh, by you know by trying to read between the lines and talking to some folks around the industry the last couple of weeks and trying to get their opinions and and understand what it is before I said anything here, um, that that probably bodes very well for selling bulk tobaccos by the ounce still without any issues. So that's that's all good news. Um, uh, the, uh, 
the other thing that is not really mentioned in this is how they are going to regulate pipes. And to the best of what I can see is that the FDA is just asking for pipe companies to register if they're made in the USA and then that's it. There's no testing requirements or anything. Anything that is made overseas will just be an imported product. And I'm guessing at this point, they'll just have their registered name and that'll be it. So that's also good for pipes. Uh, the, the bad part is I didn't see anything and I can't get anybody to give me an answer on the grandfather date of 2007. I didn't see anything about it. If anybody did, please let me know. Uh, I didn't see anything in there. So that means that, again, the grandfather date stays in place. And maybe the FDA will lift that. But again, in the last three years since this has come out, we've seen the FDA backpedal on filing dates, registration dates, and relooking at stuff and pushing things off except for registering your blends and the upcoming artwork date of or health warning date of this summer. So there's my recap. Not all bad news for us as, uh, as pipe smokers. Um, not all great news either. I am assuming that there are parties that are looking into, uh, uh, into uh, you know, appealing the decision and maybe looking for a, a court to file it in that might be a little more uh, favorable to us, uh, perhaps somewhere down in the state of Florida where the cigar companies have a huge amount of leverage, big enough leverage, in fact, that they were able to, uh, to keep a state tax off of uh, cigars. So... There you go. Comments or questions, email me, brian at pipesmagazine.com or uh, hit me up on Facebook or Pipes Magazine. You know how to get a hold of me and all that stuff. All right, in just a moment, my conversation with uh, Bob Savage. This is Internet Radio. I'm Jeremy Reeves, head blender of Cornell & Deal Pipe Tobacco Company. Since 1990, Cornell & Deal has been producing high-quality pipe tobacco expertly blended by hand using time-honored methods, unique recipes, and no small amount of innovation. One example of such innovation is our bestseller, Autumn Evening. We start with whole leaf red Virginia and strip the stems by hand. The tobacco is then cut into ribbons and cooked for two days according to our unique recipe to create our special red Virginia Cavendish. Then we infuse the tobacco while it's still hot with our secret flavoring to achieve the sublime sweetness, deep flavor, and delightful aroma that makes Autumn Evening so well-loved by our loyal customers and everyone around them as they enjoy this very special blend. Cornell & Deal Pipe Tobacco Company. It's a labor of love. Contact your local or online retailer for information. Welcome back to the Pipes Magazine radio show, and we're gonna get a uh, we're gonna get a bit of a history lesson. We're gonna learn about the way it used to be done and the way it's currently done. Because joining us from old from the Old Dominion Pipe Company, or maybe I said that wrong, uh, but we'll find out shortly. Is uh, Bob Savage? Bob, you're you're a farmer, salesman, um, everything but the IT department there, right? Pretty much, yeah. I do do everything. Uh, definitely an uh, uh, entrepreneur of sorts. <laughs> so Bob, welcome to the Pipes Magazine radio show, and let's talk about this. Let's—I mean, it's fascinating to me, but 
go all the way back to the beginning. Your family was one of the original settlers in Virginia. Yeah, um, going back to my uh, original ancestors, I had uh, one of the early uh, settlers. Actually, came through Jamestown and uh, Christopher Newport's uh, expedition was a young man by the name of uh, Thomas Savage, Ensign Thomas Savage. And uh, he actually uh, was sent by the governor to become an interpreter for uh, with the uh, Powhatan and, and the, the local Indians. And um, eventually, uh, of course, he learned the language and did a lot of interpretation for him. And back in 1622, when things got a little dicey with uh, um, with the uh, relations between the English and the uh, Native Americans, um, Powhatan, who actually uh, had really befriended Ensign Thomas. Uh, sent him over here to us today. We know as the eastern shore of Virginia or the southern tip of the Delaware Peninsula, and um, to live with one of the other tribes that was under uh, Powhatan's uh, rule. And uh, so he became actually the first English settler in this area. And that's Thomas would have been a distant cousin of mine. And then uh, some of his other relatives began to come over here in the early 1600s, and um, uh, including uh, one of my direct, I guess, my ninth grade grandfather who was a uh, Roland Savage. His father was had been uh, Sir Roland Savage, Knight of the Arts back in Ireland. And when things got a little dicey with the uh, English Civil War, uh, he, he left Ireland and came here to uh, um, to the New World and started, like a lot of, a lot of these folks coming over here, started the factory plantation and, and uh, started you know, his fam family from there. And also at the same time, the, the land that Actually, we actually farm today. We have about, it's about 150 acres that we farm today. And this uh, family farm, um, originally when we did uh, the archaeological uh, research on it, uh, we come to find out that uh, um, the, one of the original owners in 1662 was another one of my ancestors, um, John by the name of uh, Richard Kellum, who had been probably, I believe, my 12th grade grandfather. And, and this this farm was part of about a three thousand acre tobacco plantation in the early or mid sixteen hundreds. Wow! So yeah, our, our family definitely uh, has very <laughs> deep roots in uh, Virginia uh, colonial history. Yeah, so that that means that tobacco's been grown there for years and years and years. When did it switch to corn? Well, uh, of course, very early on. Actually, when Ensign Thomas uh, first came over here, he. Uh, uh, one of the first crops he grew actually was uh, Indian corn, and uh, he used it as a cash crop, selling it back as a food source to the uh, colonists in Jamestown. Um, but uh, tobacco, they, of course, you know, Virginia, once John Rolfe brought tobacco uh, to the Virginia colony, it became the big cash crop. Everybody that you know could borrow land wanted to grow tobacco, and uh, so it wasn't any different over here on, on this part of the peninsula. And uh, so everybody started growing tobacco. The problem we had with tobacco here, um, one was uh, they claimed that our, our soils in this area weren't as ideal as it was in other parts of Virginia for growing uh, quality tobacco. Um, but the other big, the biggest problem they had was is was uh, shipping it because um, we didn't have any deep ports here over here. So what would happen would be they would load the, the uh, hogsheads of tobacco. Um, on smaller boats, and they would have to go out to the Chesapeake Bay and run planks over to uh, the tobacco ships and roll the uh, hogsheads over onto the tobacco ships. And you can imagine doing that when the water's a little, a little rough. Um, so after probably the early 1700s, probably 1720s, 1730s, tobacco as a cash crop in this area of Virginia 
pretty much died out. And then um, the, the uh, corn and other grains and, and uh, later vegetables kind of became the, the primary uh, um, cash crops, if you will, for the you know, local farmers and planters. I wonder if any of those hogsheads ended up in the in the bay somewhere. I'm very sure someone probably <laughs> probably did. Whether or not anything's left of them, it's hard hard to say. <laughs> um, well, one of the one of the problems they had over here too was, of course, you know, 1700s. I mean, excuse me, even 1600s. You, you're right in the middle of that kind of golden age of piracy, and the Dutch um, would uh, frequently uh, raid the tobacco fleet in Chesapeake Bay. So a lot of times, they, uh, you know, a lot of the tobacco, the tobacco was uh, hauled away by the Dutch. And that's one reason why one of my brother, my brother Bill Savage, who's also a co-owner with me in uh, Old Dominion Pipe, um, we kind of had a theory about old Richard Callender, our ancestor, who had this plantation because this wasn't his only plantation. He also owned another plantation on the uh, on the Chesapeake Bay side of the peninsula. And my brother feels that maybe one reason he acquired this land for uh, use was. Uh, he could take his tobacco, bring it overland, uh, load it here on boats, and then go out directly out to the ocean um, and take his uh, tobacco um, on out. Uh, whereas, uh, without having to fight the Chesapeake Bay and worry about um, you know, attacks from uh, you know, pirates inside the bay, <laughs> full, full conjecture, but yeah, fun to think about it anyway. Wow, so we got uh, we got colonials. We've got we're pre-revolutionary, and you got pirates and all that in your history. And uh, so, so let's fast forward to now because uh, when did you guys start making? What came first, the the clay pipes or the cobs? Well, interestingly, the the idea to start the company came from the idea of the clays, but the cobs were really we first went into production. Though. And it, it kind of really came about, really, in the, or the idea for the company back in the, the spring of uh, 2013. And that was at the time that we actually discovered um, our ancestors' uh, original plantation site, the home site, um, on our farm. And so we started doing some excavations and bringing some different archaeologists in to look at the site. And one of the things that we were finding with these excavations were large numbers of uh, uh, clay pipes. Uh, some of them were actually fairly rare. We, we have pipes dating from mid 1600s all the way up till probably about War of 1812. Wow. And some of the pipes, including we call it, you know, we have one we sell called Colano, um, or it's also known as a Chesapeake pipe. And it's a terracotta pipe from the uh, 17th century. And these pipes, they were made here in the colonies and they were highly decorated. They see a lot of influence, probably Native American influence in them. And most of them were fired, you know, in a in an open fire, like the way the Mason and the Native Americans would, would manufacture their pipes, but they would have intricate details and, and geometric designs all around the bowls. And um, so we started finding a large number of those, and some of the ones we find are more intact than they find in other sites in other areas in, in Tidewater. And then in addition to that, we started finding a lot of uh, English clay pipes, uh, we started finding Dutch clay pipes, of course, when the <laughs> during the English Civil War, when the uh, English were preoccupied, the Dutch were more than happy to come in and fill the gap. So besides, uh, besides raiding and piracy, they, they didn't mind trading once a while, too, and benefited them. So, uh, so we started finding these at the site. And I remember one day uh, I was looking at you know, my brother. We, we, we found a really nice uh, clay. It was an English clay pipe bowl. And, it, and it was, the preservation was so well that you could, you could still see remnants of caking inside the bowl. Wow. And uh, I remember looking at that and looking at my brother and, and trying to sit 
and we're, we're both avid history buffs. I mean, I actually have my, my bachelor's is in history. And I just sat there kind of amazed looking at it, just trying to imagine the last person that smoked that pipe. And, you know, what was their life like? You know, and probably being able to smoke a pipe like that was one of probably the you know, few enjoyments they had back in those days when life was a lot tougher than they have it now. And uh, I just looked at my brother and said, you know, wouldn't it be neat to be able to recreate some of these pipes um, and, and, and bring them back to life and maybe have, you know, smokers today that would, might enjoy that history? And that was kind of light bulb that came on for the idea of Old Dominion Pipe Company. And uh, so, of course, I'd been at that point. I'd already, I was already, uh, you know, pipe smoker. I, uh, I kind of got into smoking pipes kind of, kind of late in life. But um, you know, I, I saw one of my, one of my brothers, my hobby, being Civil War bus, one of our, our history bus, one of our hobbies is the Civil War. And uh, we're both Civil War reenactors. Been probably, as a matter of fact, this is probably my thirtieth year as a, as a Civil War reenactor. Um, of course, it looked much more the part 20, you know, 30 years ago than I do now. But, <laughs> um, yeah. but uh, one of the things that you know, uh, the Civil War reenactors talk about a lot of times is they call their impression. And and basically, you know, the idea most people I think think of reenactors running around in the wool suits and and shooting their muskets off. But a lot of it is also understanding the kind of life that the soldiers, both North and South, lived and. What was their camp life like? You know, what, did they, what was their you know, enjoyment? How did they entertain themselves when they you know, when they weren't on duty? And one of the things that uh, you know that it didn't matter if you were a Union soldier or a Confederate soldier, uh, pipe smoking was a big part part of uh, their daily life. That was one yeah. of the, the few recreational things that they could enjoy. And so, as a Civil War reenactor, I decided uh, you know well I might take up pipe smoking. Just you know I was just smoking you know at reenactments and. And, and uh, so I figured I'd, you know, I'll grab some pipes. So when I, matter of fact, first first pack I ever got, I think it was a cat in black and a white page. <laughs> Took that with me and a, a little pipe. And, and of course, being a novice, I made every rookie mistake there is and in, in learning how to smoke a pipe. You know, I overpacked. I, in fact, tightened up. I puffed on it like a runaway uh, locomotive, burnt the hell out of my tongue. <laughs> <laughs> After a while, finally, you know, after using, um, I started learning, you know, how to properly you know, pack the pipe, how to properly smoke it, and just taking my time, and and then I started noticing, you know what, I, I really kind of enjoy this. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I could start getting the flavor of the tobacco, really distinguish the flavor, and and uh, and all of a sudden it was like, well, you know what, um, you know, reenactments are fine, but you know, I, I think I might start smoking this at home too. So it kind of became my, my way of doing a little relaxation, coming home from work and just sitting back and smoking a pipe. And, and my, uh, my, my lovely wife, she, uh, she was very open to, uh, um, to allow me to smoke a pipe. And as long as I smoked aromatics, it was fine smoking in the house. So uh, I said, well, that's a trade off. I don't mind smoking a few aromatics in the house. So, um, so I kind of got, gotten into smoking pipes a little bit by that point as well. And so, with finding those clay pipes, my, uh, uh, my brother and I decided, uh, um, you know, let's look into farming this company. Of course, when I started telling people about, I was thinking about farming a pipe company, they all looked at me like I was, you know, loose screws in the head. You know, like, <laughs> yeah. Aren't you about 20 years too late? You know, <laughs> you know how are you going to do anything with that? And I said, well, I think we can make a market out of it. And uh, so my brother and I, our, our point was it was always historical. We wanted... We wanted to create a product um, that was history-based, and of course, the clay pipes initially was our, our uh, kind of the angst to, to start the company. 
But we thought about, well, why don't we incorporate other pipes that, of, of, you know, of historical nature? And, of course, at, at that time, my brother um, owned and operated uh, a gristmill, and, uh, or still, he still does. And he grew an heirloom meaning corn that, we, uh, that he would grind and sell for uh, cornmeal. As a matter of fact, uh, I think in 2010, he had uh, best new food product at the Virginia Food Expo in Richmond. Oh, wow. And yeah, so it started got a lot of recognition. Uh, a lot of chefs are using restaurants and whatnot. It's you know, a very, very good product. But one, and one of the sidelines of that product, the way he shells it, the corn, who he's a stationary sheller, you know, we'd, he'd have these piles of corn cobs. So I decided, you know, I thought I kind of put two together. I said, I wonder if we could start making some historical-looking corn cob pipes. And so I said, well, before we get too far into it, let me, I'm gonna, I'll make some up myself and prime myself. And uh, So I made up a few, and of course, compared to what we make now, they were pretty crude. But uh, I made a few up, and I threw them out and smoked them, and thought, oh, God, these actually smoke really nice. And, you know, it's got a nice, they got a nice draw to them. They're, they smoke fairly cool. Um, so I think we could actually make a product so, so we started looking you know, more into it by the fall of, uh, of 2013. We actually had really incorporated uh, as an LLC, a aluminum pipe company. And we started out, uh, we knew it was going to be a little bit of a, you know, there, there was going to be a learning curve with clay pipes. So we decided, well, let's start first producing 19, like early, uh, late 19th, early 20th century style bamboo stem corn cob pipes. And we thought at the time, we knew, of course, Missouri Meerschaum was really the only other company, you know, in the, in the U.S. that making uh, corn cob pipes. And, of course, we were failing in comparison to, to their output. And, you know, we never really, it was never our intent when we started Old Dominion to, to you know, as really be looked at as a competitor to Missouri Meerschaum. We, uh, you know, we looked at more being a niche market trying to produce a, a traditional bamboo stem uh, you know, corn cob pipe. So we, uh, um, we started looking at uh, you know, trial and error, and I tried looking at you know, how to properly make them, and, and it was definitely some trials and errors with it in, in that fall. And finally, we started coming up. We felt it was a, a reasonable uh, product. And at that point, um, I decided, well, we got to get some recognition. We got to we got to let people know we're right here. So I got interested in, in, in trying to get some advertising. Uh, that's when I think in, I guess December of that year, I talked to Kevin God, maybe with Pipes Magazine, and. And uh, started doing some advertising um, as a sponsor on uh, Pipes Magazine on, on their forum for a while. And so we just wanted to kind of get out there and let people know that, you know, where we were. And as I told my brother, I said, well, 2014 will make or break us. I said, either um, people are going to like our product or they're going to hate it. <laughs> so, uh, you know, there's not much in between. So I said, you know, if, if, if it's just not a viable product, people don't like it, then, you know, there's just no need to pursue you know any further with the plays so uh you know we tried and we had some trials and error i mean the first few months you know we, we had a bumpy road you know we were just learning ourselves how to properly drill them and how thick we needed to have the woody ring on, on the cobs and, and we had a few customers but had some burnout issues so we you know, we had to overcome that and learn how, you know how how much of a woody ring we really need to keep in those pipes to make them a good viable smoking pipe um the only problem with the indian corn that we found was uh because of having to keep a thicker woody ring, which the woody ring is that is the outer uh, or inner part of the cob. That's uh, that's the that's the which really forms a good sidewall. It makes a corn cob a good you know a smoking pipe. And uh, to, to in order to not drill too much of that out, we we had to go with fairly small 
chamber sizes. And so you know, our, our Chesapeake corncob pipe, which is the smallest that we, we started with, only had a half-inch diameter chamber. And our largest was the Virginia planter at the time, and that um, we could only go out to about a 5 8 chamber. So there so was some limitations with the Indian corn, which is historically correct, because a lot of the, when Henry Tibb, you know, the founder of Missouri Meerschaum, started to manufacture, commercially manufacturing corncob pipes back in, I think, around 1869, uh, he and his competitors, there, there wasn't a corncob that was designed for making pipes. Right. It was, uh, it was a leftover from anything else. Exactly. And so, you know, they experienced all the problems that we experienced with any corn was that uh, it just really wasn't the 100% the most ideal uh, cob. I mean, it worked well, but it wasn't the best ideal for making a, a good quality smoking pipe. So, um, so we started looking at some other avenues with on the corn cobs, um, you know, ways that we, we could improve improve them. We even looked at trying to, to work uh, with their own variety to try to um, be selective on some larger cobs, trying to get a little bit larger, uh, uh, larger uh, uh, ear produced. And uh, so that, while, while we were working on that, we finally decided, you know, the first year we survived, uh, we actually did have some good feedback with customers and people seemed to like the product. So we decided uh, maybe it's time now to try to move the next phase into our, our, our clay production. And that was that was more of a challenge um, because clays, you know, it takes a little bit of skill set to learn to properly press mold clay, and then you've also got to be able to make the molds uh, to produce those pipes. I'm gonna cut so, you. I'm gonna interrupt you right here because we need to take a break. When we come back, we'll talk about clays, and then I want to talk about the stems. So stay with us. We'll be back in just a minute. Meet Josh. Everyone at SmokingPipes.com holds customers as a high priority, but nobody interacts with them more personally than Josh. He's our professor of pipes, if you will. As a previous professor of history, educating the customer comes easily to him. He loves explaining the history of a particular pipe to a customer or coaching his customer service team. I love to help customers find that perfect piece for their collection. It's my job to make sure there's a smile on the other end of the line and I'm more than happy to be the one to put it there. And although Josh's job can sometimes be quite demanding, he doesn't mind. He loves his job at smokingpipes.com. Why? Because I don't just sell pipes, I smoke them. Call us at 1-888-366-0345. That's 1-888-366-0345. Or check us out online at smokingpipes.com. We are quality. We are experts. We are smokingpipes.com and we are back on the pipes magazine radio show visiting with bob savage of the old dominion pipe company and historian and uh, gentleman farmer and uh, a good old down eastern virginia boy right there you go <laughs> yeah <laughs> you'll be in all kinds yeah. All right. So before we get into the clays, um, you call the stems on the on the cob pipes uh, bamboo, and actually, the a lot of people might reference them as like a reed. It's a reed. Yeah. yeah. It's um, where do you get them? Do you grow them? No, we we actually have a distributor source that we use. Um, I, I I west that forest and forest, and uh, I've tried to look at growing some. Uh, see, traditionally. The reason everybody calls it reed stem 
is that traditional plates in the early or late 1900s that were being, uh, when they first started producing them, they were using a, it was called River King, um, yeah. which is actually a Native American type of bamboo. And so that's what everybody kind of started with. The problem was that eventually River King became scarce. <laughs> so, so everybody then went to more of a yellow bamboo stem. So by the 20th century, most of the stems you start seeing on commercially produced pipes were of this uh, more of a yellow bamboo stem, but oftentimes people still refer to it as a reed stem, because that's traditionally what they were called, but it's basically a type of a bamboo. Um, but the, uh, um, the stems that uh, we, we try, we've actually looked at trying to grow some river cane ourselves. I'd love to be able at some point, I'm, I'm looking into trying to do that, to, to uh, be able to grow some actual river cane and be able to use some traditional uh, river cane stems. Uh, right now, we just having a time establishing our, our crop. We've got a few, I've got a few started, but not to the point where I can really uh, harvest them just yet. But that uh, is, I mean, that that is the the appearance of the pipes that you're putting out now is as close to the representation of what was around in the 1800s for a guy to, for a guy to smoke out of. Right. We, we, uh, we try to keep everything as traditional as we can. Um, for one thing, our, our bamboo, the way we make the stems, we taper the ends of the stem. So they're not actually glued into the, into the uh, cob. Um, they're actually a tapered fit. That's uh, basically a compression fit, and, and and that's traditionally how they how they were made. They didn't in those days. They didn't glue the, the bamboo or the reed into the, the stem because yeah. no hot, reed was made. There's no hot glue guns. Oh no, no, <laughs> exactly. And, and the reed at that time was meant to be uh, um, expendable. So yeah. if the reed if the reed soured on you or maybe eventually cracked, you could pop the reed out, put a replacement in, you were good to go. Um, you know, the, old, the old story adage was that old uh, uh, Mark Twain, that, you know, of course, was everybody that's the aficionado of corncob uh, pipes. But apparently he didn't like that. You know, everybody talks about the, the cobbiness of a cob, but the, that cobby flavor that some people notice on a brand new corncob uh, pipe. And apparently uh, Mark Twain didn't care for that for that flavor. So the, the story goes, whether it's true or not, he, that he would actually take some of uh, buy these uh Corn cob pipes. He would then uh, hand them out to people to smoke for him, uh, break them in, and then he would uh, get them back, pull out the, the, the stem they used, put them in a fresh stem, and, and then keep on smoking. smoking <laughs> <laughs> so that is, I mean, that is an advantage with the with, with the bamboo stems being compression fit. Once you get a cob going, you don't you can just get uh, get another stem and jam it in there. Oh yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I, we started about a year ago because one of the, we had started a lot of folks started contacting us and say, you know, I love your pipes, but you know, I need to get a replacement stem, this and that. So we actually started on our website about a year ago. We started offering uh, repla- uh, um, uh, like uh, replacement stems and uh, like uh, three packs, so folks can buy extra stems if you want to, you know, to be able to switch them out. Or if you have one mess up, you can you got a replacement <laughs> to be able to put in there. So I mean, that was very traditional. I mean, that's a lot. Matter of fact, I've, I've even seen kits of some of the original cow pipe manufacturers would make where they, they would give you a kit with two or three bowls and a bunch of stems. And uh, <laughs> so you had plenty of stems to work with with those, uh, those bowls. Well, and even, so, and uh, yeah. even during the, during the American revolution and the war of 1812 and the civil war, you hear of soldiers out in the field, you know, taking a piece of wood and whittling out a bowl and then putting a reed right up it as the, as the stem for it. So you're just doing exactly what was done back then, except you're getting it from out West, which wasn't discovered yet. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and, and that thing, a lot of the, you know, the reed stem pipes, even before the corn cobs, uh, 
they've been around for quite some time. Of course, you know, Reed Stanford used a lot of the, you know, think of like the pamphlet pipes and uh, some of the earlier uh, trade pipes. They were very common to use uh, reed stems. And, uh, and they were somewhat advantageous over the later, the earlier clay pipes. You, know, you have a traditional, we think of Colonial American uh, clay pipes with the clay stem. You know, if you were a soldier in the field, whether it was during the Revolution or even during the Civil War, problem with those pipes was that they're very fragile yeah. it was very easy your gear for that for it to get to a stop point and go pull your pipe out your body's broken in three pieces um whereas with a reed stem pipe you know you could you could actually disassemble it stick it you know stick it away more easily and like your haversite to call it really put the food stuff in and then when you got to a stop point more likely you have an actual pipe still left to be able to smoke so um yeah so reed, reed stems been actually it's a long history to, to reed stems so we're kind of very Right in our way to be able to kind of bring that back to life, you know, through through our line of corn cob pipes. You could also, if you if you broke your reed stem, you could just go down to the river and find another reed and cut it and trim it and jam it in there, and you were good to go with a clay pipe. It's a little bit more of a process to put a stem back on it. Exactly, I have heard of it done, but uh, it, it was uh, as far as my time I've seen actually where they would take and try to uh, they had a broken uh, uh, clay pipe. Uh, basically trying to hear a read to the end of that. <laughs> uh, but yeah, you know, a lot of, and, and that was the thing, a lot of people, you know, today, you know, we don't, we don't see it as much, but back in that area, people were much more self-sufficient. And a lot of times people would cut their own reeds. Um, I was talking to a, a friend of mine who uh, of Shingatee Island, um, of course they're famous today for their Shingatee ponies. Uh, but it was always a, a, a fishing community, one of the barrier, off one of our barrier islands. And uh, a friend of mine, his grandfather, um, smoked a, a old like a pamphlet style pipe. And apparently, uh, that's what he would do. And if the reed messed up or soured on him, he, he'd toss it aside, go outside, find another reed, cut it once, stick it back in the pipe, and, and keep on smoking. So. <laughs> Good to go. All right, talk talk us through your clay pipes because uh, I mean, essentially, where you're where you're living was kind of the birthplace of the clay pipe. Well, it's uh, yeah, the, the clay pipes. In the, you know, when you get into colonial era, clay, the clay pipe um, really came about. You know, with the early colonization. I mean, the, the clay pipes that preexisted before 17th century, with of course with the Spaniards. The Spaniards, of course, had, at first um, began to market. Uh, Tobacco and, and ship, shipping to Europe pretty much had a monopoly on it, and of course they introduced the clay pipe, which they copied from um, similar pipes they had seen the, uh, the Native Americans uh, smoking. And uh, but by the 17th century, of course, when the English come uh, settling into uh, uh, North America, um, they also start uh, producing their own pipes. Um, most of the, most of the clay pipes were actually they were smoked here in the colonies. Most of them were produced in in Europe. I mean, you had um, large uh, areas of uh, um, uh, pipe manufacturing in Bristol and England was a big uh, clay pipe manufacturing area. Of course, Amsterdam for the Dutch. So um, a lot, and, and of course, the, the idea with the mother co- with the mother country was you had these um, you know these colonies. Well, the idea was you wanted to to get the resources from the colonies, but at the same time they were also a resource that you could sell your goods back to. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so a lot of the uh, English and even the Dutch you know, sold a lot of pipes into the colonies, even though the tobacco was being produced here that was being smoked in those pipes. 
Um, and, and one exception, like I say, was in the, uh, with the what they call the Kalana pipe that I mentioned earlier, um, the terracotta pipe. Um, those were pretty much all domestically produced here, we believe, at least according to archaeologists um, here in the colony, especially you find a lot of them running um, Virginia, Maryland colonies. Uh, but there are also, you can see variants of it in other colonies too, uh, up at, even up in uh, Massachusetts and, and Maine. And uh, the, those pipes, the, the, the Kalano or, Ch or Ch uh, Chesapeake pipes that they were commonly referred to, um, they believe were domestically produced. There's a lot of mystery behind the pipes, but who actually produced them? Um, you know, there's um, theories, everything from probably being produced by maybe the Native Americans themselves using as a trade item with the English. Um, to maybe English colonial uh, pipe makers that learned the trade from, from the uh, Native Americans and started producing pipes to sell. And then even some that, um, that uh, when once the African slave trade started, that, um, that there were African slaves that maybe manufactured some based on some of the ge ge uh, geometric patterns they found in the pipes that are very reminiscent of you know, African designs. Wow. Um, so a lot, a lot of mystery, that little pipe. And um, so, like I said, we're, one thing we were very pleased at our site to be able to find quite a few of those. Um, I've even found, found some that I find that appear to have rune symbols on them. And I have not been able to find an archaeology anybody yet that can decipher that. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so, you know, they're very interesting, you know, finding those pipes. And, and what we decided to do when we, we started wanting, we said, we're going to try to produce these. We've got to find a way to make molds for them first. And, of course, we, we you know, with pipes being so delicate, we didn't want to, you know, try to make any type of mold that would endanger the artifacts. So I, I actually found, found a company in uh, Vienna, Virginia, that uh, um, that did 3D scanning and 3D printing. And I came up with the idea, I said, I wonder if we could maybe 3D scan the artifacts and then kind of reverse engineer through 3D printing the, uh, the molds. So I started working with this company. They came in, they 3D scanned some of the... Uh, some of the more unique pipes that we decided we wanted to try to produce. And then we went back and forth working with them. We actually, I'd send them pictures of what uh, actual pipe mold would look like at that era. And so after a short time, they began uh, producing these um, 3D printed resin molds for us. And so we started initially producing pipes with that. And, and it was trial and error, just like everything else. We, it took us a while to learn the, you know, the right consistency of the clay. Um, you know, we, we use, you know, uh, like for traditionally, a lot of the clay that was found uh, or that was used for pipe making was local clays that were uh, uh, mined and, and cleaned and then, then used in the pipe making process. We we decided to go more with a commercial uh, earthenware clay that was, you know, that's a certified non-toxic clay. Um, one, because of production means, you know, we felt like we could produce more, you know, having that clay at hand. And um, also, we felt you know that it would be a, a better quality clay you know, product. So we started using that clay, and, and of course, I was under a time crunch when we first started. We, we finally got our pipe clay pipe facility set up in uh, around January of I believe it was twenty. Uh, I believe twenty fifteen. I might be wrong on that, but uh, we uh, that year was it was the first year that I was going to attend the Chicago Pipe Show. So I wanted to have clay pipes to take to the show. And my, my brother, who's really the, the he's really the the, uh, um, the the best of of the two of us when it comes to clay pipe making. I really hit him under the gun trying to make some pipes. And after about a month's time, we were about to pull our hair out. We found all of a sudden it just clicked, and all of a sudden we could start producing pipes, and they and they quality seemed to be there. Was able to get a few pipes fired just in time for the show, 
So that, that started our, our initial production with clay pipes. And all of a sudden, we started getting a lot of interest from folks because uh, not only pipe smokers, we had a lot, you know, a lot of folks that just wanted a traditional, you know, historically accurate clay pipe. But we also started having uh, a lot of historical sites contact us because, you know, uh, it was getting harder to find clay pipes even for like souvenir, you know, gift shop type pipes. Yeah. Um, you know, the uh, Clay New Williamsburg, for example, uh, most of the clay pipes, you probably, if you're toward Clay New Williamsburg, you've seen the big long tavern pipes that they used to sell in their gift shops. Well, they were, those were produced by, you know, Williamsburg Pottery. And uh, a few years ago, Williamsburg Pottery used their kiln stuff and they decided they weren't going to redo it and that they were no longer going to produce any clay pipes. Um, so we were actually contacted by Colonial Williamsburg saying, you know, can you help us say, we'd like to have some pipes for, for a gift shop. So we started uh, producing for them the, or we call our Williamsburg model, which is um, with, uh, today, if you go into gift shops at Colonial Williamsburg, um, that's the uh, that's the model that they, they now sell as, um, as uh, you know, for, for their clay, clay pipe offering. And then we also started selling uh, to like Jamestown, York Payne. Uh, we had other sites that you know, I've even had uh, you know sites down in North Carolina. I've had other historical sites. We all started getting contacted by uh, uh, folks that wanted to use them for like theatrical productions, um, even uh, <laughs> in movies. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with. There's on Netflix. There's a series down called Frontier. Yeah. And uh, they're filming right now season three. Well, the, all the clay pipes that are used in season two and now in season three are, are old meaning clay pipes. <laughs> so. So built up, started building. Well, of course, the problem was for us, my brother and myself, was that we started producing quite pipes in that quantity. Was that uh, it, it really started coming overwhelming? It takes a while to produce a quality, you know, press mold type pipe. So we actually then had to look: how can we speed up our production in these pipes, but still keep, you know, keep a historically accurate and at the same time keep the quality that we wanted. We were very, very particular about our quality. Um, the original pipes we find here on the site are almost smooth as glass. And uh, just a very uh, almost silky smooth glassy finish to them, and we wanted to replicate that. So anything we did, if we wanted to go to some sort of type of mass production, uh, we wanted to be able to continue to replicate that fit and uh, feel. Yeah. So uh, so we started working with um, you know um, coming up with another way of producing pipes in quantity, and we started working with slip caps. Now of course. A lot of folks, uh, slip casting is a bad name. A lot of people, and I think a lot of it's because in, in the past, uh, some of the pipes that were slip cast, which were mainly made, made for uh, I think, you know, the gift shop souvenir industry, um, just weren't that really high quality. And so we worked our own technique, developed our own molds, and we're able to pour a pipe that uh, really replicates the true press mold look and feel uh, of the original pipe. And we were able then to be able to take, um, and we usually we actually polish, use like a fine sanding um, of the pipes once we once we fire them, and that gives them that nice silky smooth finish. And uh, it really makes a very quality looking uh, you know looking pipe, and uh, so far customers seem to be pretty pleased with them. And, and from what I've heard, they uh, they smoke really well, and uh, most people in the tobacco industry like to uh, taste test tobaccos with clay pipes anyway, because. It gives a, a truer taste of what the tobacco is. Sure, it does, and and that's one. Thing. And we do have a, I have a lot of customers, quite honestly, that you know they smoke they, they mostly smoke briar, but they uh, they buy our clays just for that purpose. You know, they get a new yeah. back end where they dedicate it to one of their briars. You know, they they want to sample it 
first, on the if they, do they like it, and second, if they do like it, they want to get the true flavor of that tobacco without, you know, without any effect. That's one of the things about clay, where it's more of an inert material. Um, you, you don't get any, uh, you know, you really get the true natural taste, flavor of the tobacco. So, um, so actually, that has been a, a kind of good selling point with us with some of our, our customers that really buy it as basically a testing type pipe. And uh, in that regard, you know, they, they work very well. And, um, and we're trying to work now too, coming up with some other um, designs, hopefully, where we can mass produce to a larger quantity for our customers. Uh, we're trying to, we're looking at maybe possibly the Kalano and one pipe that we've, we, uh, we finally broke the mold on it, so we hadn't produced it in a while, but we're, we're looking at maybe bringing that back. It's what we call the Jamestown. And that's, that actually is a mid 17th century uh, um, pipe. Uh, it actually was. It was made by an Englishman, but it was actually we, we actually have the original pipe has his initials on it, and uh, he was actually a uh, um, he was an Englishman, but he moved to um, Amsterdam, so he actually technically was a Dutch pipe maker. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> yeah, his pipes show up around you know in, in the colonies quite a bit, and um, and it makes a, it's a neat looking little ball of shape old pipe, kind of neat little pipe. So we're hoping they bring that back. So. Uh, we're working now with our distributor, trying to possibly uh, maybe add those in at some point here in the future. The website, if anybody wants to go to it, is Old Dominion D O M I N I O N Pipe dot com. Old Dominion's the nickname of the state of Virginia, just north of us. You know, which we call Yankee Land now, because. <laughs> Yeah. Anyway, if you live in the South, anybody north of you is a Yankee. Anybody south of you is okay until you get to Florida. Um, Bob, we will wrap this up with the Fast Five final questions. No right answer, no wrong answer, just whatever comes to your mind. Are you ready? Sure, yeah. What is your favorite pipe? Um, Probably my, my favorite pipe, I guess, would be our, uh, our Virginia planter. And uh, we were, we're producing it now with a... Uh, Actually, uh, pipe corn. We we were started growing actually uh, traditional, uh, circa 1900 era pipe corn, and uh, we got it to like three quarters chamber. So it's a good smoking pipe. It's got enough, just enough time that you can sit there and kind of enjoy smoking it. So that's probably probably my favorite that we that we produce and I enjoy smoking daily pretty much. What is your favorite tobacco? Well, my good my go to is probably Lean One Q. Um, it's kind of mild, but I, I kind of enjoy it. Just just kind of easy, relaxing smoke. And and the boss won't throw you out for it. Boss won't throw me out. I can smoke that in the house and, <laughs> and sit in my last chair. I'm good to go. <laughs> what is your favorite drink? Um, actually, now believe it or not, um, I started drinking a. Uh, we have a little micro uh, brewery here um, on Chincoteague Island, and they started using our corn, uh, both the Indian and the pipe corn, producing a corn lager. Awful tasty. So uh, I guess I would say now it's, 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 they call it how about it. So I guess how about it is now my, my new uh, beer of choice. <laughs> when it's time to relax, do you prefer a book, a movie, or music? Um, I probably, uh, well, the only time I ever read books, usually if I go on a cruise, <laughs> um, I kind of just enjoy music, maybe sit back a little bit of music and sit there and maybe enjoy my pipe a little bit, just sit back, relax, chill out. <laughs> And finally, do you have a favorite pipe smoking related memory that we haven't talked about? Um, actually, I do. Uh, you know, I think all of us that have gotten into the hobby, um, you know, had someone that left an impression on us. Um, you know, that kind of kind of led us in that direction to want to get into uh, tri pipe smoking. And 
for me, I had two uncles, both World War II vets, back when I was growing up as a kid back in the 70s. Both of them were avid pipe smokers. And um, and I remember it's just every time you go to the ha- their houses, you, you know, you'd sit down, and it was always, I loved talking to them and listening to their stories. But the rooms were always filled with that note of that of their pipe. And I just always thought finding it would be a, you know, a very enjoyable smell. Um, it was just very relaxing, kind of cozy atmosphere. And uh, I remember my Uncle Bert, he was, uh, of course, in those days, you know, we didn't have the choice of all the tobacco blends that, that you know, we have access to today. We didn't have the internet and all that. So everybody pretty much it was all, you know, over-the-counter type tobaccos. But uh, I remember Uncle Bert, he was a Sir Walter Raleigh man. That was his go-to tobacco. He'd have a big tin of that sitting there by, by his lounge chair. And then he had his uh, um, his standing uh, ashtray on the other side of the chair. And, and then uh, Uncle Jewel, his, his blend, I mean, he, he was a uh, Prince Albert man. He liked his Prince Albert. Um, but it was just, I think, you know, growing up and spending time with them and listening to their stories, Uncle Jewel was a big history buff, and that's probably one reason I got interested more in the history. And um, and that was one of the things I think, you know, I still find a lot of times, you know, even though with all the blends we have today, sometimes I find myself drawing some of these older over-the-counter blends. You know, if, you, if I can find them, I, I think at the Chicago show, we just find some, uh, um, there were some vintage blends that came available there. I was able to pick up some Edgeworth and, and later some J.G. Dill's Best. And and I think part of that goes back to that memory of just the, the, that smell of those types of tobacco, you know, growing up as, as a kid. So that's kind of, kind of the memories I kind of, kind of enjoy pipe smoking. A couple of Virginia gentlemen sitting down and uh, smoking uh, Burley-based North Carolina-made <laughs> blends and enjoying it. And Bob, thank you very much, not only for the history lesson, but for keeping the history alive and uh, and putting out a uh, putting out a darn fine little product there. Well, thank you. We appreciate it. I'll be back in just a minute. Italians have always been known for their aesthetic passion. It's their birthright, their legacy. And just like Savinelli, it continues to grow and evolve. It is ever-changing. Milan, 1876. Achilles Savinelli set out to change the way the world viewed smoking pipes, opening one of the world's first specialist tobacco shops. From one small storefront to a factory that delivered handmade pipes all over the world, the legacy he forged became one filled with success and prestige. Achilles' dream is carried on today by his family, who continues the Savinelli legacy. Each year, Savinelli debuts a series of new, forward-thinking designs comprised of quality-crafted pipes shaped from some of the best briar in the world. Behind every beautiful object, there's a story. Start your own chapter. Visit your local tobacconist or premium online dealer today. This is Internet Radio. And I am back on the Pipes Magazine radio show. I just, I just, I, I love the Southern Virginia or Eastern Virginia accent. I could listen to Bob talk all day long. And I love the history lesson. I mean, talk about a family that is deep rooted in the, in tobacco, uh, 12 generations. Wow. Um, check out Old Dominion Pipes. Uh, you can find them in uh, different uh, retailers as well. All right, for music, I couldn't find the post where I found it, uh, but the uh, the post was on pipesmagazine.com somewhere, and I couldn't find it, but I made a note about it. And it's about a musician named Willie Watson, and Willie is a Nashville-based folk, uh, you know, bluegrass musician 
who uh, is still performing and recording, and and on uh, his uh, first album, Folk Singer Volume 1, he is puffing on a big bent billiard on there. So uh, this song is called Dry Bones, and it's from Folk Singer Volume Number 2, which is available through his website, Willie Watson. Dot com W-I-L-L-I-E-W-A-T-S-O-N.com, or I'm assuming you can get it on iTunes, and I listen to it on Spotify. So here's Willie Watson. Shining all around 
Again, his name is Willie Watson, W-I-L-L-I-E-W-A-T-S-O-N. Check him out. You got mail. You got mail. You got mail. In the mailbag, and because we're running really long, uh, there's just one email that I want to, or one message that I want to read regarding last week's show. It's from Rob Cap. A uh, really good episode, Brian. I'd like to get to know Sykes better. He must be brilliantly connected to the movers and shakers in the pipe and tobacco world, and I suspect would have some great stories to tell. Uh, with guys like Shane and Josh, Smoking Pipes seems to have an immensely knowledgeable, humble, and charismatic bunch of folks working there. Very humble folk with genuine passion and who love their jobs. Yeah, and I and I think uh, one of the reasons why Sykes does so much traveling is because he is um, he's he's very old school in that you know the best way to really get to know people is to sit down and talk with them face to face. All right, uh, comments or questions, email me Brian at pipesmagazine.com. If you have a few minutes, leave us a rating or a review on iTunes. We would greatly appreciate that. And uh, in just a moment. Rant time. Cowboy. Cowboy. These robocallers are getting freaking ridiculous. Have you noticed? Have you noticed how they've changed their dialing patterns? Now some of them are calling from out of state. Uh, have, have you noticed how often you get these calls? Well, here's what I'm doing now because these robocallers are so ridiculous. I'm uh, answering them. I'm answering them and I'm trying to get to a live person. And then when I get to a live person, I'm trying to counsel them on their life choices or I'm just going to waste their time. Depending on my mood, I may just waste their time with bullshit questions because they're wasting my time with their BS. Or, you know what, I may play counselor with them and counsel them on their life choices and just waste their time. They're wasting my time. I figure the more we screw with the people that work there, the less they're gonna wanna take those jobs and maybe those robocallers will quit. I mean, literally, I'm getting two or three, maybe four a day because I've had my phone number for 16 years and it's published in several places. Well, now I'm fighting back. If I've got the time and I've got the ability, I'm just going to waste their time. Yeah, just answer the phone, get to a person. Sometimes I'll put it on mute and let them hang up on me. Other times I'll talk to them about their life choices and maybe suggest they change their life. Or, you know what, sometimes maybe I'll just string them along and answer their questions. However, don't say yes to them. Don't ever say the word yes or okay or sure. Uh, just keep going with them and screw with them. Let's all waste their time as they're wasting ours. So if you've got a minute, you get one of these robocallers. They may look like they're calling from your phone number or a phone number right near yours. Well, just keep screwing with them and hopefully we'll get these people to quit their jobs. If these robocall companies don't have people working for them, they're not going to robocall us. All right. I uh, want to thank Bob for joining us. If you have any comments or questions, again, email me, brian at pipesmagazine.com. Thank you all for tuning in and, and, and 
Until next time. Clouds when we're together. Just sing a song and think about sunny weather. Happy Portions of tonight's show were recorded using artificial intelligence because no real intelligence could be found.